the work for the children has increased rather than diminished. Every mother wants some new clothes to take back home with them. When I say home, in a large percent of cases, it only means the spot that was once called home. They are wild to return even to the ruins and stand in line all day trying to be admitted to the office where their papers are issued, which only gives the privilege of returning when the government considers the time suitable. Nobody knows when that time will come. It may be six months or longer, not at least until the peace conference is over and the indemnities adjusted. Welcome to American Epistles, the story of our country, one letter at a time. I'm your host, Susan Stevenson. American Epistles explores our history through the letters, journals, and diaries of ordinary Americans. This is the final episode in a three-part series on welfare work in World War I. As I've talked about over the past two episodes, Americans were donating their time and their money almost as soon as the war began even though the United States was officially neutral until April 1917. American women had been especially generous, in many cases traveling to Europe to offer aid. Some organized their own relief work, while others volunteered through agencies like the Salvation Army, the Red Cross, and the YMCA. When the American Expeditionary Force, or AEF, joined the fight against the Central Powers, the military put the Red Cross in charge of relief, and the YMCA was responsible for the, quote, instruction, amusement, and moral welfare of the American servicemen. As we talked about in the last episode, this aid would eventually be considered so vital that, despite initial restrictions and concerns about the women's safety, volunteers were allowed to accompany the soldiers to the front lines, even during the deadly Meuse-Argonne offensive. It lasted from September 1918 to the end of the war in November. If you're interested in learning about these battles, you might want to check out the History of the Great War podcast, which has several episodes on them. Just search their feed for Muse Argonne. This final episode focuses on the American women who continued to serve to the last days of the fighting as the troops awaited demobilization and for years after. Amy Bradley was one of the women who served in France both before and after the November 11th armistice, and we heard from her in Episode 2. She also wrote, Though it was November, some of the Poilu had no socks and some no shirts. The government can't get around to everyone, you know, and we are a little out of the way up here. Needless to say, we found we could spare some socks and some shirts from our supplies just then. A few days la later, after the captain and the aumonier of the regiment had both walked into town, a distance of five miles, to thank us, we passed the regiment on the road. We had to stop for a moment before crossing a bridge. Immediately we were surrounded by the poilu. One of them stepped forward and said, The Americans are very nice. Then, overcome by their own boldness, they evaporated into the dusk. These are only a few instances of the French at war. The same spirit prevailed in the hospitals, in their homes, and in the trenches. It was expressed in a thousand ways every day, from the poorest peasant to the intrepid cry of the whole nation, On ne passe pas and on les aura. 
over a million and a half of their soldiers are dead. Many more are cripples, and hundreds of their civilians have died in the ravaged country. May we not forget their courage and their sacrifice, and may we live as bravely and as truly as they. Isabel Coolidge is another volunteer from whom we heard last time, and after working in Paris, she went east to Alsace, which went back and forth between France and Germany many times over the centuries. At the end of World War I, it went to France, and Coolidge wrote about the conditions of the residents there. Some of them almost starving to death, some of them with horrible neglected wounds, all of them thin, of a peculiar color, neither green nor gray, but both. We fed them what we had, what we thought poor, they thought manna, and the meat we were sick of, we had boiled beef twice every day, was a wonderful sight to them. They had stories and pictures, horrible, and the most pitiful pieces of work on which they had spent years, boxes elaborately carved and ugly beyond belief. We had the influenza, too. Men who had been four years prisoners died before they could see their families. It was not a gay time for us. Still, they had French voices around them and French uniforms before their eyes. We had Alsatians also who had served in the German ranks. They were most absurdly proud of their new sky-blue uniforms and peacocked about the wards. Our hospital had been a big central one for the Germans during the war, and we inherited from them not only numerous Alsatian pa patients, but also a staff of Alsatian doctors and nurses who used to regale us with tales of how much better the Germans did things. When the prisoners were all out, we still had the army of occupation to attend to. With the demobilization and the advent of spring, our work lightened, and when the paid nurses arrived, we retired. I came home in May 1919. Coolidge's account referred to the worldwide flu pandemic, which began in the summer of 1918 and killed more people than the war did. Estimates range from 20 to 50 million. An estimated half million died in the United States, and more American soldiers were killed by the flu than by combat. Its origins are uncertain, but it may have been called Spanish flu because unlike the belligerent nations, neutral Spain did not have a wartime news blackout, so its newspapers were the first to report on it. Spain was hit hard by the pandemic, which even infected King Alfonso XIII. There were dozens, possibly hundreds of agencies that conducted welfare work during the war. The Red Cross and YMCA were the most prominent. YMCA volunteer Laura Burkhead was the writer of the letter read in the introduction to the episode. And Red Cross volunteer Eleanor Saltonstall, who went by Nora, was very busy driving camions or trucks during the final week of the war. November 4, 1918 the chauffeurs have been most tremendously busy these last two weeks on account of moving. My life seems to hinge around choked carburetors, broken springs, long hours on the road, food snatched when you can get it, and sleep. Nothing else has mattered to me, and I feel like a regular camion driver. Dirty, but so accustomed to the job that it is no longer tiring. The fact is not absolutely proved, and two French nurses may spoil my claim. but. Without going too deeply into the fact of their being there, 
I can say that I am the first woman to have slept in St. Quentin after the departure of the Bosch. I was the first one of our crowd anyway, and ate with the doctors for several days. A French nurse bunked with me for a short time, who was most interesting. Her home is Le Cateau, and she was over two years with the Germans. She had a large farm, 25 horses, and the corresponding amount of hens, pigs, etc. Of course, she lost all her livestock at the very start, but she hoped to find her house standing. However, she walked over there the other day, and everything was destroyed. Even her cellar mined and all her trees cut. Pretty discouraging. The country over which I have been motoring is tremendously interesting, but mostly gloomy. Unless there are soldiers about, there is not a living thing, nothing but waste and destruction. If you saw a whole house, you would stop and look at it as a phenomenon. One evening I tried to take a shortcut home with a doctor, and we got most hopelessly involved in bad roads, which finally led us to an impassable bridge. We had to retrace our steps completely and start all over again. The sensation was extraordinary, to be going over the lines not so very long ago and the scene of the fighting, to go forever and ever and never seem to get out of it. The car was going badly, and I thought surely we were stuck for the night. But luck was with us, and we struck a good road, getting us home at nine o'clock. Never again will I be so foolish as to try shortcuts home through no man's land, even if it is French property now. The weather has been warm and nice so far. Rainy and muddy, but nothing to complain about. We have got some pretty good houses, small rooms with open fireplaces, and plenty of wood to burn. Therefore, solid, com solid comfort. Unfortunately, it appears that we are to move again almost immediately. A conservative estimate gives the last two weeks' record 1,400 kilometers from my car alone. Not bad, do you think? Two other agencies that provided significant relief to France during and after the war were the American Fund for French Wounded, or AFFW, and the American Committee for Devastated France. The acronym for its French name is C-A-R-D. The AFFW was founded by American women living abroad and served small French hospitals. Their efforts benefited French soldiers and civilians, as well as refugees, of which there were 1.85 million in September 1918. Elizabeth Beale served with the AFFW as a chauffeur between January and May 1919, and the following is an excerpt from a letter she wrote about her experiences. February 10, 1919 You have asked me to give you a detailed account of our day's work, so I'll describe yesterday, which was especially busy, but typical of our life here. In the morning we were to have a distribution, so we spent all the various evening in unpacking extra cases and piling the huge tables in our storeroom with innumerable peculiar shirts and flannel petticoats, one to five years. Why will people at home think all little French girls are one to five years? And endless pajamas. We had a hard time making the peasants understand pajamas. They insist on wearing flannel ones in the street. At 5 a.m. we were aroused by a continuous roar from the street. I looked out and discovered a tremendous mob surging against our door, in spite of the fact that we had posted a notice saying, Distribution, 9 to 5. 
The noise increased, and there was a free fight when we opened our door, only a crack to let in one at a time, at nine, and we had to get a gendarme from the mare to help us keep order. Although he was most efficient, he lent an air of authority to the proceeding. Mama received each person and collected data concerning the number of children, ages, etc., and we made up as suitable a package as possible with the supplies we had on hand. The poor things had often walked fifteen miles in the snow and waited several hours, so that we hoped their hopes would be fulfilled by what they got. They certainly seemed overjoyed with the knitted things and blankets, and the smiles on their faces as they fought their way out through the waiting crowd was enough to keep you working indefinitely. Two poor women fainted from exhaustion in our courtyard, and we had to try our first aid on them, and then I had to back Lizzie through the mob to drive them home, as they had come from a village ten miles away and weren't strong enough to walk home. After a hasty lunch, I was deputed to drive some supplies to Crevecourt, a little village about eight miles away, while the rest of the unit went on with the distribution. It was a horrid, gray, cold day, and when I came to the poor little village, straggling along the side of a hill, it certainly did faire crever le cour. Not a whole house in the place, and yet about 150 families were back there already, trying to roof over and fix up the remains of their poor cottages. I drove up to the Marie, quite an important brick building in its day, but with no roof or windows now, and a corner knocked off by a shell. The mayor, a dear, genial old soul, received me, or rather my supplies, with open arms, and tried to persuade me to take some coffee with him. I tried to refuse, but then he offered wine, so I saw that I should hurt him if I didn't stop. I went into his little office and chatted to the best of my ability, while drinking a cup of really excellent coffee, that is, when you can get used to three-quarters chicory and one-quarter coffee. I had a hard time understanding him, as he talked with a strong Flemish accent, but we conversed mostly with beaming smiles. Of course, I had to pick up a piece of barbed wire in my tire on the way home, so I cruised in quite late. Although it was dark and the distribution had officially stopped an hour before, a few patient people were still hanging around, and we had to literally drive them off. It didn't take me long to get to sleep. We sleep in everything from our boots now. It is so cold. The CARD, which I mentioned right before Ms. Beale's letter, was co-founded by Canadian doctor Anne-Marie Dyke and her friend Anne Tracy Morgan. Morgan was the youngest child of industry titan J.P. Morgan and was not new to philanthropy. In New York, she had worked with the National Civic Federation to feed underprivileged women workers. With other New York socialites, she formed a committee in the Women's Trade Union League to protect workers at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. The workers, striking against low wages and harsh working conditions, were sometimes beaten by the police and by others hired by the company to abuse them. Members of Anne's committee, derisively called the Mink Brigade, walked the picket lines themselves, expecting that they were less likely to be arrested due to their social position. Ms. Morgan and her committee mates also went to court to pay the fines for the workers who were arrested. When the war began, Morgan had been traveling in France. After observing the destruction wrought by the war, 
she returned to the States to raise awareness and funds, and she took on the role of treasurer for the AFFW. She returned to France when America joined the fighting. With Dr. Dyke and eight volunteers, she helped rebuild the wrecked village of Blairancourt, which had been under German occupation for three years before being liberated. A 17th-century chateau was their base of operations. Dyke and Morgan founded the CARD in 1919, and their ranks eventually grew to about 350 volunteers. Marion Bartol was one of those volunteers, and she described Blairancourt and her work there in a letter to her family. Incidentally, Anne Morgan received the Legion of Honor in 1924, the first American woman ever to do so. The village of Blairancourt is in a plain, surrounded by small wooded hills, and only the fruit trees are destroyed. Also, the fields are all planted, so the countryside looks green, and part of the devastation is hidden by nature. Our barracks are in the courtyard of an old chateau, which belonged to the Poitiers family, and was built in about 1400, and almost entirely destroyed by the Revolution. What little remained was badly shelled, so that now all that is left are two gateways and two side wings. I have taken some pictures and will send them to you as soon as they are developed. The chateau had a moat around it, which is now dry. Blairancourt is considered the choicest place to be stationed, as it is very well situated, just on the edge of town, and is the social head of the whole committee, as Mrs. Dyke and Miss Morgan spend their Sundays here. Consequently, although Sunday is supposed to be a day of absolute rest, it is usually spent entertaining visitors, conveying them to and from the station, etc. The village was terribly shelled by the Germans and is largely in ruins. The church and the marie, or town hall, are pitiful. A great many of the inhabitants have returned and are living in the ruins of their former houses, which they are trying to repair and make habitable again. Window glass is very scarce, so they use a waxed, reinforced paper for all of the window, except one pane which is glass, so they can see out. The paper keeps the cold air out, but also the light. Yesterday I spent trying to learn the French names for the things I have to sell. My French is improving hourly as I sit between two French women at the table and get splendid practice. I find that I know plenty to get along with in the store and also in the villages. The directrice from Vic arrived to call this afternoon, bringing with her Miss Shope, who crossed with us. I am certainly glad Miss S. is not here with us, as she is perpetually gloomy. Kate Lewis has had a much harder time than I have since she has been here, as I had Anne to show me everything, and she has had to learn from the other chauffeurs, who, of course, were nothing like as nice to her as Anne was to me. Driving and taking care of a Ford car is not easy at first. I have helped change two tires, and that is all I have to do with a car since I have been here, except to be driven to various places. Whenever I want to go any place, I order a car and chauffeur, which amuses me greatly, as I can really drive better than most of them. I am feeling splendidly. The out-of-door life suits me perfectly. And since I have gotten accustomed to the coarse bread, my digestion equals an ostrich. The food here is very good. I got a letter from both of you yesterday, dated on my birthday. Affectionately, Marion. It's interesting that Marion was not permitted to drive, 
since volunteers were required to have driver's licenses. Quote, thoroughly competent to drive and care for their own cars was the exact requirement. They also had to be at least 25 years old and, quote, in sound health. They had to be able to speak French, and we can hear that Marion's speaking improved during her time in France. Bartol and the other CARD volunteers helped rebuild the Picardy region of France in the north, which saw some of the bloodiest fighting of the war. She described the devastation of Soissons in the southeastern part of Picardy in a letter dated October 17, 1920. Soissons is terribly destroyed, but is being rebuilt. Also, the surrounding country is being cultivated, a thing which is impossible further on. The Chemin des Dames is exactly what my mental picture of a country left absolutely desolate by war ought to look like. There were gaunt specters of trees standing on either side of the road, barbed wire entanglements in the fields, huge shell holes everywhere, and dugouts all along the roadside. We got out when we got to what looked like an interesting one and explored it, as deep in as our matches would light it up. It was very large and well-built, and reminded me of the tombs of the kings in Egypt. All of the bridges over the rivers and canals have been destroyed, and in most cases temporary ones have been built. The road was one of the route nationale and had been repaired, so was excellent all the way. We stopped about 15 kilometers this side of Reim for lunch, which we ate in a large shell hole on the roadside. The Reim Cathedral and town are most interesting. I cannot understand why any of the cathedral is left standing, as it is such a prominent target on a level plain that it should have been completely blown to pieces. The houses around it are entirely destroyed. The cathedral is being partially restored by the Beaux-Arts in Paris. But of course, the beautiful stained glass can never be replaced, and not a vestige of the former windows remains, although Maynard hunted in a couple of curio shops, hoping to find a bit as a souvenir. As was the case with YMCA volunteers, as I discussed in Episode 1, CARD volunteers had to be able to pay their own expenses for the duration of their service. For CARD, this could be up to $1,500 for a six-month tour of duty. This meant that the typical overseas volunteer was from a comfortable, if not wealthy, family. The Bartols were a prominent Philadelphia family, and Marion's trips to Europe prior to the war had been chronicled in the society pages. But as Anne Morgan said to the New York Times, quote, we do not want sightseers who would like to go over for half a year to view France's battlefields, end quote. To the contrary, the women worked long hours and provided a wide array of services. André Tardieu, who would serve as prime minister three separate times in the 1920s and 30s, credited the CARD's success to their small size and their focus on a few villages. They organized construction sites, small factories, workshops, and sewing rooms. CARD offered medical exams, promoted health education, and organized networks of visiting nurses. They also assisted with farming and animal husbandry, bringing in seed and replacing livestock. Clothing, food, linen, and tools were distributed by the CARD. The organization also saw to the community's educational needs, establishing schools and public libraries. The library's children's sections, which were a novelty in France, 
had recreational activities such as story hour. CARD volunteers also arranged for dance performances and organized parties for the children. Bartol described one of the parties, or FET, in the following letter. October 6, 1920. I intended to write sooner and describe the fete on Sunday, but I've been so busy. I've not had time until today. I got your letters of September 20th and 24th this morning, also one from Mary Smith. They are most welcome, also all the home news. The silo filling certainly was late this year. We usually are all through by the 25th, instead of just starting. There are no silos in France, as there is no field corn. The cows are fed hay of all types and concentrated feed. The few cows there are in this province are the ones the Germans have sent back, and they are a miserable lot of tubercular-looking Herefords and Durhams, not a good milk cow in the lot. I am rather sorry that I am not able to do any agricultural work with the committee. Apparently there is none I can do here, and I would have to go to Villeneuve about six hours on the train, and live there if I want to do that line of work. Of course, I do not want to leave Blairancourt. That and the fact that I am not allowed to drive a car, but always have to be driven, usually by a rather poor driver, are the only two things I could wish changed. In every other respect, I love the work in all its phases. And I have no idea when we are coming back. Edith Farr is going to be married in the early winter, and has asked Anne to be a bridesmaid. She naturally wants to be back in time for the wedding, but does not know when it will take place yet. If all goes well at home, and you all keep well, and do not especially need me, I should very much like to stay my entire six months. That will not be up until February. But if the weather is severe here, and we are not as comfortable as we expect to be, perhaps I will change my mind. Now for the Sunday fete. The day was wonderful, clear and mild, with a very blue sky and tiny floating clouds. We had an 11.30 lunch, and then each of us went in a large camion to a village to collect the children. I had both Pont-Saint-Mar and Gouni. These two are our most distant villages, about six miles away, and we had to go slowly when the forty children were in, as the camion is rather rough riding. I also collected the two school teachers and took them too. We got back to the place at Blairancourt at one forty-five, and the fete was supposed to begin at two. It was a half hour late, however, and the band did not arrive until then from Soissons. I felt as if I were in the final day of the Rose Cottage as I marshaled the children out of the various drills and games and finally helped serve hot chocolate and cakes to the entire bunch. The drills and gymnastics came off very well, and it is quite surprising how well the children have learned working together and the sport of games in two months. The Latin races entirely lack the sporting instinct in games, which is so strongly developed in American and English children. Doran, the Texan girl, who is in charge of the work, is one of the most efficient and objectionable people I have ever met. We all got much tired with her at times, as she is so impressed with her own importance and ability that she is hopeless. She is the only one here who is not of our class, and consequently is hard to deal with on that account. After the fete and the distribution of prizes, we took the children, 
350 altogether, back to their villages and rested on our laurels. On Tuesday evening, Anne, Tommy, Dewhurst, and I went on a picnic. I had some bacon, sliced very thin, which I had bought in Paris, and we made a fire and cooked it, and also scrambled eggs and tomatoes together. We took three of the dogs with us, and they sat just on the edge of the circle, watching everything we did with glistening eyes. When we had finished, we let them have the remains. We have another dog here now, a six-week-old Scotch Terrier, the offspring of a pair of terriers that belonged to one of the Highland regiments. She's the spunkiest and cutest puppy I have ever seen. With love to everyone, affectionately, Marion. There was time for a little sightseeing, as we see from a letter that Marion wrote the week before. I'll read two sections of the letter. September 28th. I have had a fine time for the last two days in Paris, and am enjoying every minute of it. I have not eaten two meals in the same place, and the variety of food is very welcome after a month in Blairancourt, where, of course, there is a certain sameness in the menu, although the food is splendid and served very hot, which would suit Auntie. Sunday evening, Kate and I went to Prunier's restaurant, like bookbinders at home, which specializes in lobsters. It was only a block from this hotel, and we got a very good dinner there. The place was crowded with middle-class families eating their Sunday evening meal out, probably in the absence of their maid of all work. Monday morning, I spent shopping and went to the bank. Tell George, if he has not already done so, to buy $500 worth of francs and place it to my credit at Morgan Harge. I still have a balance of 9,000 francs, but don't want it to get low, as from time to time I have to buy clothes, as well as use it for my living expenses, and I want to keep my $500 in American Express checks as a reserve. I had invited Catherine and Henri to lunch with me at the Marguerite, so met them there at 12.30, the fashionable lunch hour. It has not changed a bit since I was there last with Grandma and Mr. Crozet. We had the famous sole with French peas, cooked with lettuce, brie cheese, café parfait, and coffee. Afterwards, Catherine went with me and I bought a hat. It is almost the color of my Canadian fur and made of feathers and singularly becoming. We both decided it went so well with the fur that it would be a mistake to put any other fur on the coat. So I took it to Kay's dressmaker and had it interlined with wolf, with wool flannel. I have now discarded both of my straw hats and am all fitted out until I come home, except for some dresses. I have shortened three of my dresses, about three inches each, on Kay's advice, and now look quite Parisian. Last night we took dinner in Kay's apartment and played bridge afterwards. It is really nice to have a member of my family settled here and to know that if I needed any help, I have only to telephone her. This morning I got my hair washed and then met Kay at the Chinese Umbrella, a tea shop where I had heard they served cornbread. We lunched on fried chicken, sweet potatoes, and cornbread. This evening I am taking dinner at Catherine's, and afterwards I have three tickets for the Comédie Française. I've never been there, and Greer told me it was part of one's education to go. I miss having him here with me this time, but I've been very lucky in knowing people here each time I've been in. 
On my next time off, I'm coming with Tomlinson, the New York girl, and as she knows a lot of people at the American Embassy, we should enjoy ourselves. I'm going back to Blair Encore right after lunch tomorrow. Mrs. Tracy, who came over to replace Aunt Kate, is in charge of personnel now. I've already been notified, unofficially, that my work with the committee is highly satisfactory, which is very nice to know at the end of the first month. France is very much excited over Monsieur Milleron's election, and everyone is much pleased. They ask us, why doesn't Mr. Wilson resign too? He has just the same illness as Deschanel. This is hard to explain. I personally think he ought to. With lots of love to everyone, Marion. Paul Deschanel was elected prime minister after Georges Clemenceau, who was PM at the end of the war. Clemenceau, U.S. President Woodrow Wilson, Italian PM Vittorio Orlando, and United Kingdom Prime Minister Lloyd George formed the Big Four, who made the major decisions about the terms of the Treaty of Versailles. Signed on June 28, 1919, seven months after the armistice and five years after the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, it ended the state of war between Germany and the Allies. One component of the treaty was a League of Nations championed by Woodrow Wilson. Designed to prevent future wars, the League would be an international organization that arbitrated disputes. After facing opposition from isolationists in Congress, who saw the League as a threat to American autonomy, Wilson began a national tour to promote the League to the American people. On September 25th, a few weeks after it started, Wilson collapsed due to mental and physical stress, which may have been the source of the comment in Marion's last letter. Deschanel had resigned as Prime Minister of France due to mental illness. Wilson later had a stroke, and for months, his wife Edith was the de facto president, while her husband's true incapacitated condition was hidden from the public and even his cabinet. For 17 months, anyone who wanted to see the president got the First Lady instead. Any papers brought for Mr. Wilson were read by Mrs. Wilson, who claimed that she had read them to the president and gotten his feedback. She referred to this role as stewardship and said, I studied every paper sent from the different secretaries or senators and tried to digest and present in tabloid form the things that, despite my vigilance, had to go to the president. I myself never made a single decision regarding the disposition of public affairs. The only decision that was mine was what was important and what was not, and the very important decision of when to present matters to my husband. By the time Edith Wilson began her so-called stewardship, she was actually no stranger to the business of running the federal government. Mr. and Mrs. Wilson frequently worked together in a private upstairs office. The president had given the first lady access to his mail and to the classified document drawer, and the secret wartime code. Edith Wilson also sat in on meetings and screened visitors, preventing advisors from seeing President Wilson if she felt that he could not be disturbed. As for the League of Nations, it was not to be. During two votes, one in November 1919 and the other in March 1920, the treaty failed to win a two-thirds majority. 
and many modern historians believe that the seeds of the next global conflict were sown by the Treaty of Versailles. Critics of the treaty argue that the reparation terms led to the economic crisis that gave rise to the Nazi party. That is a debate I leave to other podcasts. But whatever the future held, thousands of American women could confidently say that they had played a part in bringing great good into the lives of many during a time of great suffering. Laura Burkhead expressed some of that confidence in what will be the last letter of this series. August 17, 1920 Dear Isabel, Your letter came today. I was glad to hear from you again, but I'm afraid you will be disappointed when I tell you there is nothing that I know of for you to do where you can make expenses. The Ann Morgan Committee for Devastated Regions are keeping up its work, but it pays nothing. In fact, all of them contribute large amounts for the work in addition to their time that is put in during the secretarial duties. There are still a few YMCA workers left here doing a little in the way of running a hotel, which has partaken of a club nature for American women traveling alone. Then some of them are at the cemeteries running rest houses, in other words, small hotels for people visiting the graves of their dead. Everything started and financed by the Americans has been given over to the French to manage with French help. The crippled soldiers are being re-educated, Nearly all have graduated in the work they have chosen. As for crippled children, they are few and far between. Tuberculosis is about the only thing that is getting special attention, and even that has been turned over to the French. All the girls that come now are regular stenographers and are employed by the firm for, which they, for whom they work. The Knights of Columbus still have a hostess house for straggling sailors and a few soldiers that find their way into Paris, but they only have one girl as hostess. The others are ordinary servants that obey the orders. From the present indications, there may soon be another war raging, but I rather think it will be fought on commercial lines. Everybody seems to be satisfied with the amount of blood already shed, and the fight will only be for money. Well, may Americans be proud of the work done by those that stayed at home. It is a notable fact that all the lower classes of children are well-clothed. I see the greatest difference in their appearance. I used to see more patches than clothes, but the patches have given way to new garments. All of them look well-kept. The suffering has been great, but the reward has been greater. Another year will be long enough for a complete restoration in all the districts that, rep that reparations are to be made. Some of the places are to remain as they are monuments of the outrages committed. If I hear anything that will do you any good, getting to France, I will make a note of it. In the meantime, you keep your eyes open, for one like Mrs. McCamber may never know what will turn up. I was glad to hear the Little Pike news. My love to your family, and even if you do think you have nothing to say, it is something to me. Yours sincerely, Laura Burkhead. The letters of Laura Burkhead were shared with permission from the State Historical Society of Missouri. The Marion Bartow Collection is managed by the Morgan Library and Museum in New York City. The letters and narratives of Amy Bradley, Isabel Coolidge, and Nora Saltonstall are from the book The Overseas War Record of the Windsor School, 
1914-1919. The music is performed by Pretlow Stevenson IV. Show notes are at AmericanEpistles.com and check the Pinterest page for images related to today's episode. Please like the podcast on Facebook, follow on Twitter at Ordinary Letters, or leave a comment and rating at Apple Podcasts. American Epistles is also on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Thank you very much for listening.